linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, I didn't quite make it out with this podcast yesterday like I planned, but uh, at least it's a day earlier than last week. And eventually I hope to post these podcasts on Tuesdays so as to fit into the schedule of some of my personal favorite podcasts. Because, uh, as you know, on Mondays we've got the Dope Cast, Wednesday is the Sea Realm, Thursday is the Sounds of Worldwide Weed, and every other Friday we get a new installment of Psychonautica. And on uh, most Saturdays, we get either uh, Zandor's Girl Report or Stories from Lefty. So Tuesdays would be the ideal day for me to post installments at the Psychedelic Salon. Of course, there's always these technical glitches. I had today's program all recorded, or I was in the middle of recording, I should say. Uh, when all of a sudden, uh, I don't know if it's this wonderful Dell computer or this WavePad software, but it just stopped recording right in the middle. And uh, so now I'm doing it all over again, recording it on my little SanDisk uh, MP3 player, and hopefully we'll get this out to you uh, one way or another. But uh, don't ask me uh, to tell you my opinion about uh, either WavePad or Dell or whatever is going wrong here, because uh, it's very frustrating. Anyhow, this week uh, I was determined to uh, get this program online by Tuesday, but after listening to the talk you're about to hear, I got carried away with organizing what I wanted to say about today's program. Needless to say, I uh, wound up in a series of mental loops, each one bringing yet another thought that today's talk brought to mind, and uh, the result was a long outline that may someday be expanded into an essay. In other words, uh, (laughs) I got so carried away with myself that nothing else got done, uh, other than some interesting thinking on my part. At least it was interesting to me. So now I've come full circle and have decided to just play this talk for you and let you do your own wild speculating and come to your own conclusions about at least one of the topics raised in today's talk by Bruce Damer. This talk was actually presented at the 2004 Mind States Conference that was held in Oaxaca, Mexico. And I wasn't able to make it to this conference myself, but from what I've been told by some of the people who were there, it was a wonderful experience. And besides Bruce, some of the other presenters there included Ann and Sasha Shulgin, Alex and Allison Gray, Jonathan Ott, and Daniel Siebert. Today I'm going to play one of the talks that Bruce Damer gave, and while it is relatively short and disarmingly easy to grok, I hope it gives you the same kind of jolt to your brain that it gave me. In particular, I recommend that you pay very close attention to the part where Bruce talks about a man who gradually came out of a coma and regathered the pieces of his psyche. As I said, I've decided against laying on you my own spin on this, at least for now, but I hope that you're able to spend a few moments thinking about Bruce's comment about how the universe may actually be in the process of waking up, of becoming aware of itself. While I've heard and read similar ideas before, it wasn't until Bruce brought it up in the context of a man coming out of a coma that the full implications of this line of thought really dawned on me. And as I said in an earlier podcast, uh, Terrence McKenna once called Bruce a visionary's visionary. And in my humble opinion, Terrence was right on the mark. 
while futurists like Werner Vinge and Ray Kurzweil have been dancing along the far edge of the future of human life for a long time, Bruce's mental reach is far, far beyond this little planet. In fact, uh, he is one of those rare intellects who takes the entire universe into account when he peers deeply into the future. So let's join Bruce now for a mental stroll that stretches from stories about Terence McKenna all the way to what might be going on in this incredible universe we now find ourselves in. Uh, what I'm going to do, and this is going to take approximately 33 minutes, uh, I timed it this morning, 33 minute journey where we're going to start with, and don't hold me to that, you can start throwing the cream pies uh, 34 minutes of that uh, we're going to kind of do a journey uh, starting with Terence McKenna, so I know he's, he kept, keeps getting mentioned here, and we just did a series of lectures at Burning Man called Palenque Norte, which is the second year that he's been there, and you know, they're in honor of Palenque and in honor of Terence. We're going to kind of go from Terence, and then we're going to go way out into the cosmos, and we may find him there, and then we're going to kind of turn, come back. And so it's, it's quite a journey. I'm sorry it's the end of the day. I hope there's some caffeine molecules in some of the brains out there uh, that need it. Um, Terrence, as you may know, died in the year 2000. Uh, I was at Terrence's house in April of 1999 when he looked terrible. Uh, we did a project with him where we built, uh, his son Finn McKenna and several other people built a virtual world in cyberspace. And he went into this world and people came in as avatars, as little characters, and then he did a talk. About 30 people showed up, uh, and he said, you know, I usually travel in a jumbo jet for six hours to talk to an audience of 30 people. <laughs> so in the comfort of his home, there he was doing this, and people wrote trip reports. He was fascinated by virtual worlds and shared online spaces. And, um, but one of the things that's interesting is his mind contained such visions that he described that he said, can these worlds be done? The visions that one of the visions he described was one of dancing Fabergé eggs. I think you've probably heard of dancing silvery Fabergé eggs. I said, Terrence, I don't think we're going to get there for a long time in computer rendering. But, you know, use your, you know, we'll use, we'll have to have, have hope. And he said, well, the good thing about this stuff is it's not scheduled yet. <laughs> so I was like, see, I bet there's a multi-billion dollar, massive multiplayer gaming industry out there that's not scheduled. Um, anyway, so at Alchemical Arts, uh, which is a, a profound conference because it was really, it was the last conference Terrence was able to attend because he, uh, in, in May, he was started having seizures. In April, he told us we were staying with him. He said, I'm having dreams that I cannot explain. Now, from anybody else in the world, you think, well, you know, you have dreams, but not for Terrence. You know, Terrence really knew the landscape of all things big that could come into his mind, and he just couldn't understand these things. And, and he started suffering seizures in May, went for a scan. The doctor came into his room and said, this will seem very ironic to you, but you have a tumor, a very large one, the shape of a mushroom. And Terrence said, this is very ironic. This tumor is the shape of a mushroom, but he had less than about 10 months to live. So we held this conference, and at one point, I don't know who suggested this, but Terrence laid down on the floor in sort of a circular room, and we all lay down with our heads pointing toward Terrence and try to conjure up any vision that came to us. Some people wanted to try to heal him. I think it was 
by this point, his, his literally the physical matter of his brain was dissolving. I mean, the man was dissolving. Um, he was very cognizant to the last moment, but he was it's kind of coming apart. And uh, the vision that I that conjured into my brain was this sort of Fabergé egg on the side with poly, shining polygons with their sort of little cushions in there, and there was Terence, and it was going up, and it was carrying him away. And uh, I told him later about this, uh, and somebody said, uh, that, that was like Terence's getaway car. Sort of seriousness aside, uh, well, he was in... He was in Marin County for the last few weeks of his life, people always attending to him. And then when he was really a couple of days from death, having trouble breathing, uh, he, uh, one of the things that, that came over him, suddenly he sat like a romantic poet in the poster bed, he sat bolt upright in bed. And he said, it's all about love. Now, you probably do this all the time, but Understand, Terence was a serious forebrain case, head case. It was all, for him, it was all about words. Words, visions, and pictures, and, you know, weaving words together. just a bard of words. And he turned to somebody and said, you know, I've never really been a love bug. But it strikes me now, or, because in a sense, the, the great powerful forebrain of this man of dissolve, was dissolving, and what was coming up into that was this overwhelming sense of love as he was approaching death. He said, the whole psychedelic movement, it's about love. It's not about all this other stuff. It's about love. You know, it was, it was pouring through. And two days later, he was just sort of in bed, just you know, very, very little of him left. And he said, just before he died, he said, no, I could, I could, could have got, got this wrong, but he said, people keep on, keep on breathing. Just keep on breathing. And that was the last, the last of Terence McKenna. If you come down to the thing, if you if you have some kind of an experience where you dissolve, where you're gone, um, you, I'm you how many how many people felt like they're almost gone. Like now, those kind of trips tend to strip away; they blow away stuff. I mean, and you come out of the, the bad phase or the good phase, you might call it. There's like nothing left. There's this little shaking thing that's just you that survived that and it comes into a new territory and it's very open to things because everything else has been blown away and however method you use to get through that phase is you're now open and I did that once myself and, and the words came all it needs is love you know, it's, the Beatles have told us this but you know the, the little being wanted just wanted love um, and so I started to think about the Fabergé eggs and love and things like that and it struck me in the last few years that the, 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 the overwhelming sense of powerful love is so big it's almost bigger than a human being it's bigger than you can make from inside and maybe the dancing Fabergé eggs that Terence saw are so fantastical and there's such a complete universe of these, these eggs it was a civilization of dancing Fabergé eggs that it's almost sort of inconceivable that the memories that Terence had in his life, in his day-to-day life, could add up to making this self-consistent universe he saw. So I pose the question, uh, does this stuff come from inside our bodies, from the complexity of our brains and our glial cells and whatever, it just may, does it come from somewhere else? Now, for millennia, people have but of course, there's there's an outside, there's an ether, there's a god, there's 
there's, there's Mount Zeus, there's all these explanations for where these things come from. We're in a, a remarkable era, an era of opening of understanding in cosmology that I think is so big. When you, when you start to read, if you wade through Scientific American or Discover or whatever, and you, you start to, when you read these articles and you start putting together, your mind starts to just like, oh my God, and this picture's emerging. And of course, everyone's working in their specialty, but if you read this stuff, it's almost, it's almost creates a sense of wonder. Every time you start reading, it's like, oh my God, it's almost a, a trip comes on because the, the, the picture that's emerging of the whole universe and maybe how it began and maybe how it's going to end is, is dumbstrucking. And uh, so what I want to do is to kind of try to give you a real short summary of that picture because it is an, an awestrucking kind of a thing. And then maybe try to cast us out far into the future maybe the point of the death of the universe. Because the universe, it seems, has a life cycle, just like you, just like a plant or a bird, or, or, or in, a, in a sense, a single star. The universe has a birth, a life, and a death. Um, and maybe it would suggest where some of this stuff, this big stuff, comes from. Maybe it comes, comes from somewhere pretty remarkable. So it seems as though the, the universe is a sort of self-contained thing, never loses any information. If you look out into the night sky, you're looking back billions of years in some cases. And everything's still there. I mean, the signals are very faint. But they're looking back to periods of the formation of the first stars now. They're looking back to the cosmic background radiation which was formed you know, at the point of, of, of the inflationary Big Bang. They're sort of seeing, kind of like, oh, it's all there. The whole movie's recorded. There's nothing that's being lost. There's nothing dribbled over the edge and lost. There's no files been deleted. You know. Sorry for you security people. It's all there. Um, that it seems as though, as a pro, uh, Professor Arnold uh, Guth that has proposed that if you add up all the stuff, all the dark matter and the, the energy and the, the positive and negative energy and whatever, you add it all, it comes to zero. Adds to zero. Sums completely to zero. So it's actually, the universe is nothing in total. Space keeps things apart because if it was all in one spot, it would just split out of existence. There's nothing there. So space and change make the dynamism. But there really is nothing. Adds to nothing. And what's interesting about all this is that, uh, you know, how did the universe start? Well, Guth says, well, maybe it's a random quantum fluctuation in a field. So there was this happy time, the time of Eden, and it was just a quantum field. Everything was fluctuating properly, and then something didn't fluctuate properly and it unpeeled into the entire universe. The potential energy is so big a whole universe is formed. And maybe what's happening now is that you have this horrible pile of junk that appears even going to get cleaned up. So all these black holes are like the, the, the mechanism saying, oh, we've got to get this mess cleaned up. Um, and these black holes are sucking it all back in and everything sort of the vacuum cleaners have begun. Maybe, maybe that's the process. So if, if that's the case, is the universe a one-shot error that's eventually going to get cleaned up and it'll be back to the quantum, the quantum field. Now, if the universe could continue to expand at a faster and faster rate, as seems to be evidenced by you know, what, what you can see, and therefore things in the far future, galaxies will be so far apart you won't even be able to detect each other and stars will be all brown dwarfs and the stuff will just be going almost at the speed of light and it will basically matter and energy, the whole thing will evaporate into one big smear of all gone. 
The other alternative is that there is enough of this dark unknown matter to reverse that expansion and, and pull it back. Now, I'm, when it pulls back, of course, it's going to, you know, that, that universe is moving and change. It's not just sort of sitting there. It's always moving. So it's got to be expanding to, to a complete smear or it's going to pull back. When it pulls back, it's going to collapse down. It's like if you were re-entering Earth's orbit or, or something was crashing the sun, it's being pulled back. And when it reaches that point, it poof, it goes out of existence. And all the information, everything with it, so it will be gone. It will all add up to zero. So, what if, indeed, in, in this whole process, if you look out of the, at the universe, you, you probably could categorize all the stuff out there into two, class, two classes of stuff. Stars, they have birth life and death, but they don't really, they're not living things in the way we define it. If you look back to the very first stars, they're the same as the stars we have now. Stars have not evolved, they've not, they've not created any new structure. They just sort of appear and they crush a bunch of gases together and then they do something and then they have a blast and that'll blow the material off or to become a black hole. And rocks have been rocks for all time. Rocks have, haven't changed and evolved new structures. And then there's this funny little thing called life which seems to go counter to all that, and it's the other classification of stuff. And it's, and, and where I had this epiphany about this was, I was down in South Africa in a gold mine about 600 feet down below the surface. And South Africans are, uh, they're not, you wouldn't say they're risk averse, they're risk seeking uh, peoples. So they love to show off to tourists, so they, they have this great steam hammer, jackhammer, and there you are in this tunnel, Stuff is dripping down, it's dark, and you're 600 feet down. Of course, they've gone down for miles, uh, and it's hot, and they're banging away on the side of the tunnel, chipping away some more gold, and saying, see, here's some gold, and, and, and it's oxidizing because there wasn't any oxygen in the atmosphere when this gold was laid down in a reef, just a little, little bits and pieces. And, and you're in there, and you're shaking, and the beams are shaking, and you're thinking, this whole thing's going to come down and crush my body. And the gold reef, uh, which was mined for a century, created great wealth in southern Africa, was uh, is two billion years old. No oxygen in the atmosphere two billion years ago, not enough for you. And I had this sort of epiphany that, so what? The mountain can come down and crush my bloody little body. You know, just there'd be no remnant of it left. But I'll tell you, the DNA in, in my cells is tougher and more persistent than this gold reef, Africa, most star systems, i.e. for three point some billion years, there's little sequences of information that have been coded. They're coded in every cell in your body that had unchanged. They go back. They march back billions of years. A mechanism called life was able to fight against all this crud and entropy and fires and brimstone and preserve this little piece of information forward. And that's called reproduction. It's called life. And that that process is tougher. It, it, it outlives the, it's the life of most stars. It's certainly older and tougher and more resilient than all the configurations of the continents. So in the middle of, of this great machine that's the universe, if you could think of a machine, you have these, this tiny process that fights against the odds and wins in the universal game to a point. I'll, I'll digress for, for a moment. I have a, this whole thing is a digression. Uh, there's a fellow named Chris Langton, and I, many of you may know him. He started the Artificial Life 
field of research. He started that field because one day, I think he fell out of a hang glider. He told me he was in a coma for two months. And this guy has broken almost every bone in his body before that. Uh, he likes to work with concrete, things like this. He built tree houses. And he, he told me that in the second month, as he started to come out of the coma, he started to sense his consciousness rebooting, coming back. And he said, it was like phases. There was one bit, and then another bit, and another bit. And I started to know I had a body, and then I rebooted. And, and I realized my consciousness was built out of emergent bits that just came together and started talking to each other, and another one was talking. And, we were, and, and I said to Chris, well, what was the thing that was watching and feeling yourself rebooting? Was it sort of outside of you? And it's a curious idea. But it led to the idea that what is the universe as this great big mass of stuff has managed to create little bits of life here and there. Some of them go beyond the bacterial level and become more complex. Some of them start to look out at the universe and become aware of it and, and maybe even communicate with other chunks of life here and there. What if the universe, like Chris Langton's brain, is gradually booting up an awareness of itself? Now, why, is it, why would it do this? Why would it do this? Well, every living thing seems to be, you know, we have pigs, and when we had them anesthetized to uh, get their tusks cut off, it was a horrible thing when they came out of anesthetic, because a pig is an animal that wants to be on its feet at all times. If it can't stand up, it's going to bash its head against it hundreds of times against every surface known unless you can get to it and sit on it because it's trying to come back to consciousness and it knows what the right state for a pig should be and it's going to go crazy until it can be in the right state which is on all, four, all fours and so watching the pig's emergent consciousness come back is a frightening thing I mean, you want to run out of the pen I mean, you're going to get killed it's just a terrible thing so in a sense, the universe is, is coming to consciousness there's a certain urgency now, what is that urgency? Just like any living thing, uh, it's its own life. Its own, it wants to be alive. It wants to know itself, but it wants to survive. Well, what's going, what, is the doom, what is its doom? Well, its doom probably is the collapse. So, in a sense, is the universe trying to boot itself into consciousness before it collapses back down? Now, consider... When you're, when you're a little blastule, when, you, when your egg is had the sperm and it's starting to duplicate and replicate, little ball forms of cells, uh, and it gets to a certain size, and a researcher friend of mine has written a, a giant tome about observing sonic waves going back and forth across this embryo. And they're very complex, and they're studying them. Because, of course, the key question in the embryo is, what starts cell differentiation? Why does... Why is, why does the whole thing start turning into a cup and then you get your gut on the inside and your outside on the outside. What restarts that? And it seems, he claims that it's there's complex sonic waves. Well, in the birth of the universe, up to a certain period, the universe was a gas and massive sound waves were reverberating across the universe and they were creating the structure of sheet walls of galaxies and everything you see. And you can see that structure from satellites launched recently like WMAP. So at a certain point, just like in an embryo, the universe was a giant voice. And then it went silent. All the parts separated. There was no way to get sound waves across. Of course, we live in a gas ball, too. Is it a coincidence that having a gas or a liquid as a medium for resonant communication seems to be 
to be present to make structure. That's one idea. So, consider, if the universe is in it going into its, into its collapse phase, and it's coming back down, what has happened? Maybe the largest engineering project undertaken in the universe, which is the sentient beings, the, the percentage of the universe which is actually organized into life is increasing. It's up to half a percent or something like that, which would be enormous. It's up to half a percent. And this collapse is occurring. There's a couple hundred thousand years left. What has to happen? Well, the sentient races are actually now quite physically close. Indeed, the period in which the universe will be again in a gas is coming, where the entire thing is going to be connected sonically again. Well, if the universe has managed to convert a percentage of itself into an aware stratum, those beings, of course, have to make a decision. Do we work together as a team because we know the inevitable? Or do we carry on what we've always been doing, as we do on this planet, fight with each other, argue over budget and, and, and allocations and resources and culture and difference? Or do we try to save the whole thing? Can you picture, in some future universe, entering the gas phase and there's this glowing cloud, and the glowing cloud is getting brighter and brighter because it's actually the ignition of the sentience. And what are they doing? To, to do the engineering job of saving the universe from final annihilation, they have to do something pretty unusual. They have to sacrifice themselves completely. All those civilizations, all that history, all those beings have to give themselves over and dissolve themselves, like Terence's brain dissolving, to create a single entity. A single entity that can live and exist long enough in this collapsing universe to figure it out. So, a baby is born. An ignition happens. The gas phase is there. There's enough there. And the single, the whole universe is now a single conscious entity. Now, like any baby, you know, if you've had kids, they all think they're the universe, right? At the beginning. Air everything. They're the center of everything. is nothing else. There's no other demands. So there would be a period, in, indeed, where this universe is actually this tremendous creation of love, because the only way it could be created is in complete love. Anything else, anything short, would create something not whole enough to do this job. So this baby is created and born in love. The baby can, has many abilities. The baby must start feeding. Like any baby. This baby feeds on knowledge. And where's the knowledge? It's totally contained within the collapsing universe. The universe didn't lose anything. It's able to look back and look back at you sitting here, look back at everything and, and try to figure out where its family is, where did it come from, and what, why is it here? Why is it created? And it has a little time. And like any sentient species, things are left to the damn last minute. So the whole project was delivered at the last minute. So the, the baby is figured out, ooh, I'm getting really comfortable because I'm getting smaller and smaller, and ooh, bad news. I'm about to be doomed. The great crime of all of this is the oneness was established that we all seek, we all seek to be part of it, and it's about to be extinguished. The baby has to use every, every deductive power, it has to call back through time for every piece of support it can get to figure out how to save everything. Now, why would it save everything? Why wouldn't it just say, that's fine, it was a great life, let's just go. Well, it's the prerogative of life. It's going to make that decision to, to preserve the investment, to preserve the legacy, to, to go on, to have a future. 
So the baby works it out. The baby sees physics and sees how it can do this job. And what does it do? It starts to turn its body. It has all the resources that this beck and call. It can, every molecule, every wave of energy, it can muster as this collapse occurs. It starts to turn like almost like a dancer or a skater because it knows from having worked out everything that if it turns fast enough, it can kind of pull itself apart and pull, pull the big blob which is about to collapse into two blobs. So a gigantic cell mitosis happens. Two blobs, two bits of what was once one beam are now rotating like this. It's not the end of the story because those two pieces are so big that they're going to implode into inviolate way and destroy most of what was there. So those two pieces have to mitose. And again and again and again until you have the safe level of the blastula that forms in every living being including that made you. That ball forms where each component is, can, can stand alone and can survive on its own. So where would that, where would the universe too, that's the second phase of the universe, what is it? It's now a colony, it's now a society, complete consciousness. But it has lost the one thing that had always been dreamed of, which was total unity. It's now a community again. And now has to work with all those things that communities do, including aloneness for the individuals. So where that second phase, that second life of the universe, should it, have, should it achieve it, who knows where it goes? Does it try to figure out how to change, make another quantum wiggle? It's hard to know. Now, trying to, trying to bring this back to Earth a little bit. Uh, so, in a sense, one of the, the, the weird things about all this, the new work on string theory and other things, is you might think, well, that's a remote event. You know, it's like the great quake, you know, we won't think about it and it's way up. Well, in some interpretations of string theory, we're kind of living along several string dimensions which resonate in a certain way, but there's so many dimensions that in fact, all events that happened in the past and happen in the future are happening at once. What you're living in is, is a mesh. And it's kind of like a mesh that comes out, you know, you see big bang, big crunch or something like this. This is one of the pictures drawn. Then in fact, you're inside the resonance of things that are happening at the same time. Everything's happening at once. So in fact, the event of the formation of that beam and that beam's looking back is happening all the time. You're just getting little cracked visions of that, little, little gaps where that comes through every once in a while. And that the power that you feel when love comes through you or when you see something, you have a vision that seems to be completely you know, out of this world, could it be coming from that future present event that is occurring, that you're just tapping into, that you're just opening a little door to? That's a question. Could that be that where that is coming from? And are you part of it, that great project the universe is trying to do, which is to know itself and to to then save itself, and the only way is through, through love. And would somebody like Jesus Christ have been a human being that just happened to be born with a, an open valve, or maybe Buddha or, or Muhammad, open, an open valve to that massive form out there, or in there, that is this universal love, and that as a human being they didn't kind of shut it off, 
they kind of like, you know, do the, do the shutdown and all. Gee, that's too powerful. I'm scared about that. They just simply, they couldn't help themselves. It just came out and blasting out. And that, that's the way they, where they live. They're tied into that all the time. It's a question. Um, so, in, in a sense, Terrence having the, and we talked about autism and we talked about uh, shutting down parts of the brain to see other, to have other things emerge. You know, as Terrence's brain dissolved, literally physically dissolved, uh, what came rushing up through him was this tremendously powerful feeling about love that he could hardly, barely communicate. And maybe Terence's leaving us uh, allowed him to melt into that great that space, into that project, to join that project. So maybe that while he was here, like all people who create communication with a resonant voice or make music and and create a resonant vibration uh, with other humans through love, they're part of maybe that great project. And maybe Terence melted into that project or was taken taken back into that project because he did have... Uh, that did come to him in the end. The last point is, is kind of a, a, a strange one. Is that in your... Why did the universe create human beings? Um, this human brain... And we talk a lot about the brain. I have been told that there are more discrete pathways through the brain than there are exist than there are countable particles in the universe down to the quantum level. So the numbers are very big in this this thing, this jelly gray jelly mass that's been created in into us. So the universe has actually created a machine or a mechanism that can contain some Thing that's a substantial portion of the vision of the whole universe. And that maybe that's part of, you know, from the single cell, that's part of the drive, is to create a machine that is able to be large enough that it can look out into the cosmos and start by bits and pieces and fits and starts to put together the whole picture. You know, John Wheeler, the physicist and contemporary of Dick Feynman, says, perhaps the universe is something that's created... Uh, observers in order to then create the reality of itself. That the observation and the reality go step by step so that if you get observers emerging, more structure emerges in the universe at the same time. So maybe your brain got two, two things going for you. Your brain is maybe big enough to get a rendering of a fraction of the universe, the whole thing, to accept, not burn out like Johnny Mnemonic, but accept visions and things that are large enough, sort of in a sense like a, like a camera obscura, you can see the little fragments and they're actually, your brain's big enough to carry those fragments that are very large. And the second thing is that you, through DNA and through the, the graciousness of our sun being so stable and not going through any dangerous parts of the galaxy for the last four billion years, your DNA have allowed you to go back four billion years and to journey around 65 times around the galaxy, etc., and that you've survived and given this incredible legacy of stability uh, to evolve to this, this point so that you can be a camera obscura on something. And uh, because you're here at this conference, what you're seeking is a connection with some greater thing. Well, maybe you're part of a great project that is uh, unfolding as we speak and that you're uh, citizens of. Um, I know it's a wacky idea, uh, but I, 
in a sense, after reading cos- all this cosmology stuff, um, I, I, I kind of tend to want to believe that more than sort of traditional religious explanations. Because, my goodness, the, the people who looked at the night sky and followed leaders in white garb and whatnot didn't have this knowledge. And if they did, they'd blown their minds. They would said, all right, we'll create an even bigger vision for human spirituality if we had that knowledge. And some of them had that knowledge tacitly. Some of the, uh, the, 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 the indigenous peoples did have a more profound knowledge of, of where we are in the universe and we give them credit for it. So anyway, so I, I hope that that's, you know, and, and, and I think Terence is out there. So if you, if you want to reach him, I think you can reach him through love at this point. This is his last message. And keep breathing. So thank you. Keep breathing. Keep breathing. How many times have we all heard Terrence McKenna give that advice when he was telling us what to do on a DMT trip? I think you can hear him say that in several of the podcasts that I've done of his talks. And I can still remember my first smoked DMT trip. It was in a small cabin in a Mexican jungle, and the person who guided me on that first trip had also been trained by Terrence. And after a few deep inhalations of that acrid smoke, I remember entering into a space that held me totally, totally in awe. That's about the only way I can describe it. But I think you know what I'm trying to say. You know, it was one of those plus five experiences that just takes your breath away. And after what seemed to me like an eternity, I I heard my guide whispering in my ear, breathe, keep breathing. And until right now, I hadn't connected that moment uh, with an experience I had in the mountains a few weeks ago. It was another of those rare moments that hovered between a plus four and plus five on Sasha's psychedelic experience scale. And the experience was so profound, in fact, that uh, I'm only now, several weeks later, beginning to get my mind around what happened. And it was during that experience that I can distinctly remember hearing a voice. Maybe it was someone in the circle with me, and maybe it was only in my mind, but I distinctly heard a voice saying, keep breathing, keep breathing. And uh, now we hear Bruce say that those two words were uh, among the last words that Terrence ever spoke. Having just finished reading the appendix to Graham Hancock's incredible new book, Supernatural, where he interviews Rick Strassman, I've been uh, doing a lot of thinking about the death experience and the possibility that Dr. Strassman presents that we spontaneously release some DMT from our pineal gland, both at birth and at death. And by the way, if you haven't heard about this, uh, just Google the words DMT, birth, death, pineal, without the quotes, and uh, you'll get hundreds of hits. So let's speculate a bit here. When uh, talking about the DMT experience, one of the things that Terrence McKenna almost always said was that during the experience, it was important to keep breathing. Now, I don't know about you, but my guess is that in the hour or so before his death, Terrence uh, may have experienced a spontaneous release of DMT and and almost as a reflex reaction to entering DMT space, uh, perhaps he reminded himself to keep breathing. Or, uh, <laughs> and this is my favorite speculation here, what if by saying keep breathing, it was uh, actually Terence's way of telling us that it's true. We do have a spontaneous DMT release at death. 
Maybe Terrence's Keep Breathing is just his prankish version of uh, Rosebud. <laughs> the truth is, we'll never know. I'd like to go on and talk about some of the other ideas Bruce presented here, but I've got several other things to cover today, and so I'd better move on. I will tell you this, though. Uh, last November, when Bruce and I were staying up through several nights of digitizing Ralph Abraham's tapes of the trialogues, I recorded an hour-long rap of Bruce that uh, is really mind-blowing, at least if you're interested in space exploration, which is a field where Bruce spends a great deal of his professional life. I would have played it for you by now, but uh, it doesn't quite fit into the mix here in the Psychedelic Salon. My intention is to uh, start another podcast channel where I can play this kind of talk, but as you already know, I, I have way too many balls in the air right now to undertake a project like that. But uh, if you're interested in some of the things Bruce is up to, I highly recommend that you visit his website at www.damer.com. Even if you just go there to uh, look at the thousands of photos he's posted, it uh, will probably be well worth your time. Another use of your time that I can recommend is a new podcast called Psychonautica that is uh, coming from the Cannabis Podcast Network, which you can find at www.dopefiend.co.uk. And this program is uh, hosted by KMO of the Sea Realm and uh, the ever-popular Max Freakout. Now, you might think that uh, just because KMO and Max have interviewed me for uh, one of their programs that I'm giving them a gratuitous plug, but I can assure you that uh, I'd be plugging this podcast anyway, so uh, you might want to check it out for yourself and see what I mean. Overall, uh, I have to say that I'm close to 100% on board with almost all of the opinions uh, that the two of them have about psychedelic medicines. However, uh, for the very first time, I've, I've got to disagree with Max Freakout on something, and that has to do with how one should use ayahuasca. Now, I don't mean this to be critical, because uh, Max uh, did preface his remarks by saying that he'd never taken ayahuasca himself, and he very correctly said that he was quite leery of all these shaman wannabes who are going around and charging an exorbitant amount of money to participate in what they consider to be an authentic experience. Now, I'm sure that uh, some of them uh, are actually coming close to an authentic ayahuasca experience, but my gut feeling is that uh, the real ones are few and far between. So here's my opinion, and you can take this advice or not, but uh, what I very strongly believe about the use of ayahuasca is that you should not come to any conclusions about it yourself until you have, at the very least, had the experience under the guidance of an ayahuascaro who was born into the tradition and who, who had been a full-time apprentice to a respected Iowa for at least 10 years or more before leading circles on his or her own, and that the actual brew be made in the Amazon by that very same Iowa and out of wild, non-cultivated vines. And even then, you won't have an experience equal to what it would have been in the Amazon, but if you at least meet those criteria, I'm convinced that you will know what the experience should be like. Normally, I'm uh, right there with Max Freakout and Terrence McKenna on the value of having these experiences alone. But ayahuasca is so very different than smoke DMT or any other experience that I've ever had, and that is uh, largely due to being in a group and the expert guidance of the group's energy by a skilled ayahuasca. 
even though this is uh, basically a solo experience, there is an entirely new layer to it that's added by being in a circle of uh, six to twenty or so others. And one last thought about this, and I'll move on. But the uh, little package of pills that you can get uh, that call themselves Pharmawaska will definitely not, <laughs> and I say definitely not, come anywhere close to reproducing the ayahuasca experience. With one exception, that is, and uh, unless you have a very unusual metabolism, you'll definitely throw up about an hour or so after ingesting those little pills. And I deliberately use the phrase throw up rather than purge. You know, purging under the influence of ayahuasca, as gross as it sounds, is usually a peak psychedelic experience, one you definitely don't want to miss. But Pharmawaska just made me sick <laughs> for many, many hours. So uh, if you do try it, please don't think you've tried the vine itself. This is uh, one time that I think all of the experts, at least almost all of them, would agree that the natural substance is orders and orders of magnitude different than a laboratory-made chemical substitute. So, now let's go to the old email bag, and uh, if there is such a thing, <laughs> and finish up today's program with uh, some thoughts from some of you. Louis uh, Gallopew, and I hope I pronounced your name right there, Louis, uh, sent some interesting thoughts about alternative education models and how they might interface with the trilogue method used by McKenna and others. And one of the things he points out is that there are a lot of good free educational programs available on the Internet, including MIT's OpenCourseWare series that you can find at ocw.mit.edu. And if you've never uh, been to that site, it, it certainly is worth visiting. And Louis also sent a number of other links, but I don't have time to go into them now. Uh, maybe we can get him to start a thread on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog where you can add your own links as well. I've also uh, received quite a few emails, like one from Joanne, in which you're asking if I have any advice on how to connect with other members of the psychedelic community. And uh, that's a problem I wish I had the answer to. Like uh, Joanne and many others who join us in the salon each week, I spent many years thinking that I was the last person my age to still be interested in these sacred medicines. Then the internet came along and I discovered that not only was I not alone, but that there were millions of other people walking around on this planet who were feeling exactly the same way. For now, uh, I guess the only suggestions I have are to find conferences that uh, focus on some of the topics we're interested in and try to find like-minded people there. In my case, I, I did that and found a lot of people to connect with, but very few of them lived close to me, and so I moved to California to be closer to them. And I realized that uh, <laughs> moving to California really isn't an option for many people, so uh, I'm not the best person to be giving advice in this area. About the only thing I can say right now is that I'm sure, I am sure, that there are dozens of psychedelic explorers within driving distance of where you are right at this moment. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there were literally hundreds of like-minded people near you. And if you ever figure out a good way of connecting with them, well, please let me know and I'll pass your ideas along. I also received an interesting email from Christian who says he is from a far corner of the UK and finds it a pretty lonely place for people like us. And that reminded me of a story I just heard, and it was either Max Freakout or the Dope Fiend who told it in the podcast, and basically uh, someone contacted him uh, after hearing the podcast and 
They exchanged a few emails and found that they had a lot in common. And then, <laughs> then they discovered that they lived almost within walking distance of one another. So uh, if you think you're living in a place where these sacred medicines aren't truly appreciated, well, you might want to think again because we're everywhere. And a special uh, thanks, by the way, to Christian, Joseph, and the dozens of others who have offered to help me with work on the various websites that support the Psychedelic Salon. If I can ever get my act together, uh, <laughs> which may be quite doubtful at this stage of my life, well, if I can ever get organized, I, I hope to take some of you up on your offers. For now, I do want to at least acknowledge the fact that it brings great joy to my life to know that you're out there and willing to help. In fact, uh, all of your emails, even though I can no longer keep up with answering them, they all mean a lot to me. And as any podcaster will tell you, it's your feedback that keeps us going. So uh, thank you all for your interest in these programs. And uh, in particular, uh, thank you to Michael, who uh, I think goes by the email handle of a dime short, and Kevin and John, who have sent very generous donations to help keep the salon going. Like the Sea Realm and the podcast from the Cannabis Podcast Network, this is a listener-sponsored program. And uh, thanks to you, I've been able to manage the growth and bandwidth requirements as this podcast audience grows. In fact, uh, I haven't had a single complaint from either of my web hosting companies in several months now. So we're on a good track here to keep growing our audience. And while I'm at it, uh, I want to mention once again the super generous Robert, who also hails from the U.K., Robert uh, has sent in a second generous donation, which is way above and beyond the call of duty here. Once I get today's program posted, I'll be sending a personal thank you to you all, and I apologize for not doing so earlier. You guys are the greatest. You really are. Thank you so much for helping us to keep these podcasts coming. Another interesting email I received uh, came from Eric, who said, among other things, Fraser Clark's talk on outdoor raves also interested me as the outdoor trance party scene in and around Cape Town is absolutely cooking and has been for quite a few years. The Earth Dance Festival in September of last year was an incredible experience and I'm looking forward to Vortex on Easter weekend 2007. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, Vortex celebration, uh, Eric, because uh, although I haven't been there myself, a close friend of mine has spent many hours telling me wonderful stories about Vortex. And uh, maybe Eric or some of the other saloners can pull together a few sound bites from uh, the event this year and we can pass them along in the salon. Like uh, Dope Stock that will be held in Amsterdam on April 20th. While I won't be there in the flesh, I most certainly will be there with you in spirit. And that reminds me that I'd better sign off for now and get back to work on organizing the Planque Norte lectures for this year's Burning Man Festival. And I'll tell you more about that in the months ahead. Before I go, I should mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click on the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. If you still have questions, just send them in an email to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. I want to thank Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the salon today and in all of the previous podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon. I guess that by now you've figured out that their song, Hell Alien, has become our theme song. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us again, and I look forward to being with you next week. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. 
Be well, my friends. It is the impossible become possible, and yet remaining impossible.